The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, August continues to live up to its reputation for being a pretty volatile month. We saw a closely watched portion of the yield curve briefly invert for the first time since 2007. The Dow suffered its worst day of the year and events in Hong Kong and Argentina also jolted financial markets. And if that's not crazy enough, we'll close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. Sarah, I feel like we're changing the paradigm a little bit on Wall Street. You know, it used to be to make a name for yourself on Wall Street, you had to sort of show up at appearances like this and have (laughs) have actionable investment ideas. Now you need to show up with actionable investment ideas and some crazy things you saw in in markets this week. Well, at at least this week makes it uh, pretty easy to do that. (laughs) Right, right. So no pressure on our guests, but we'll introduce them now. Uh, First joining us for the first time is Gabriela Santos, a global market strategist for JP Morgan Asset Management. Gabriella, welcome to the show, and I hope you have something crazy for us. Oh, I have a lot of crazy a lot? things. Okay, that's Amazing. The kind of, it's that's, a great week. Living up to it. <laughs> that's the kind of guest we like. And a walking crazy idea machine himself is our cross-asset reporter, Luke Kawa, joining us uh, this week, too. Luke, I trust you have some crazy, crazy yeah, things. I'll, I'll give a hint. It involves 169. All right. Uh, leave people hanging. Yeah. We'll get there. All right. And don't forget to call our What Goes Up hotline to offer your own crazy things you saw in markets. Or if you have a question for the hosts uh, and upcoming guests, uh, give us a call, drop a voicemail. Maybe we'll play your voicemail on the show. And just as a reminder, that number is 646-324-3490. But Gabby, I want to start with you. A lot of talk this week about the inversion of the yield curve. The 210 finally turning negative. What does this actually mean? So we tend to look at the yield curve not as a crystal ball on its own, but really a piece of a much broader puzzle. We look at a whole other variety of indicators, which will include market as well as economic data. And I think really the inversion of the yield curve after a really long process of flattening here confirms a few things we've already known. We're late cycle, and we're clearly in the midst of a downshift in the pace of global and U.S. growth. So for us, it's broad, It's a broader piece of the story that we've been telling our clients, and that's led us to advise clients to become a bit more defensive here. You know, Gabby, I was an English major, not a finance major, so I, I tend to think in corny analogies and metaphors. And the one I've been using all week is is the yield curve inversion. It's like if you're a captain of a ship and you see a lighthouse out in the distance, but you're not sure if it's a mile away or 100 miles away. And I think it's even more complicated this time since we saw that three-month, 10-year, and the three-month, five-year curve invert. Uh, was it March, basically? They, they started inverting, uh, have, have been an inversion off and on since then, more in inversion than not. So 
does that complicate sort of the timing uh, of this signal um, and and the timing of potential weakness in the economy? Because um, that strikes me as an unusual event. Usually, it's the twos tens either goes first or or they all go at the same time. How do you sort of? I mean, is it foolish to try to even time, uh, uh, say, a stock market top or the onset of a recession? Based on the curve, should you just think, well, it's coming eventually and, and not try to time it? Absolutely. We do not believe in timing uh, our investments or our portfolio allocations, frankly, at all, much less based on the yield curve alone. Um, when we hear stats about the yield curve, usually they're done when the yield curve inverts on a sustained manner before a recession. Where we are is just the yield curve inverted intraday. We don't know if this is going to continue happening, sustain or not. So actually, the lead time between the first inversion, when it first happens, and a recession is huge. Sometimes it's 50 months. Sometimes it's 12 months. So there's absolutely no way to know. And hence, that's why we really need to look at a much broader range of pieces of the puzzle here. Luke, what has been different this time around is that we have seen the inversion on top of a bull flattening. So as we see bonds rallying, bullish for people holding bonds, yields are coming down. What about this message does that actually change since we're seeing a bull flattening? Yeah. First of all, in general, I'd say, you know, trying to use the yield curve as a recession indicator, like think of the sample size we're working with here. This is this is this is just not not impressive at all. This is not uh, what anyone would consider very, very rigorous statistical so, analysis. Sorry, sorry we couldn't have more recessions. It's a good news story in that effect. But uh, I think the, the nature that this was a, a bull flatten, uh, 10 years rallying more than two years into it, it helps uh, to what Gabrielle was saying. It helps back up the points we already knew. This is much more a signal that you know, the global economy will remain, is expected to remain slow, relatively moribund for uh, for a long period of time, rather than that there's danger right around the corner. That's the particular message I would take from here. And also, it does help that, you know, if we were talking about yield curve as a recession indicator, we have the last bull flattening into inversion that we had was 1998. The Fed responded aggressively to mm-hmm. damage in financial markets by cutting rates and you know, managed to avoid a recession until the Fed had started and then hiking again and the uh, the TMT bubble blew up. So, you know, you can say history is on our side that this is not a recession indicator this time. And if we just think about why people, I think, mention the yield curve so much, it's, you know, it's supposed to be this crystal ball that's telling us so much about expectations. And part of it is true. There's clearly a downshift happening in growth. And, and that's That's part of the story. But the reason the long end is falling so much, I think we think, has also a lot to do with variables that are not economic necessarily in nature. There's just a tremendous amount of foreign demand, for example. Uh, With this week, uh, am I getting ahead of myself with a crazy stat? $16 trillion of negative negative yielding debt. That's a bonus crazy thing right there. (laughs) Bonus crazy injected in the mix. But it says a lot about the kind of foreign demand, the heavy anchor that's also weighing that long end. It makes it a bit more of a mixed indicator than usual, something actually Janet Yellen pointed out this this week. Yeah, like we've had this week, we've seen retail sales be be fairly strong. U.S. data clearly is not falling off a cliff. And you see a lot of folks saying, well, well, rates clearly aren't trading off U.S. economic <laughs> fundamentals. Well, yes, that's that's because we don't live in a closed system. It's because we have free and open capital accounts. And when you see the still yawning gap between, the, say, the U.S. 30-year and you know, the 30-year boond, 
it's it's very clear that uh, you know the global aspect to this is kind of outweighing at times any big macro story you might be wanting to tell through the yield curve. And I'll be honest, I'm sick of talking about the yield curve. I don't know anyone else. It's yes. hear me? dominating. I love it. Love it. Hands up. I think regular listeners long. of this podcast are sick of hearing about. Gabby it has gotten many calls from guys. <laughs> I can tell you this week, haven't you? So let's <laughs> let's move on to the. You know, you mentioned it being one piece of the puzzle. Let's move on to what are the other pieces of the puzzle you're looking at. Um, you know, I, I've been looking at the ISM numbers, and uh, I got to say they do look like they're starting to fit into that recession image a little bit. Um, uh, what else are you looking at and, and, you know, what's the picture that's emerging in this puzzle? Yeah, manufacturing is is a big piece of that um, downshift puzzle. Uh, we, we could arguably say that the global manufacturing sector is in recession. Uh, we think a lot of that has to do with, with trade tensions, not necessarily the tariffs in and of themselves, but the uncertainty that this is all generating this like dark, gloomy cloud following businesses around. And it's just not the environment where CapEx uh, is, is, is very strong, right? So I, a piece of the puzzle that's flashing a red sign would very much be the manufacturing sector, uh, exports around the world as well, in particular in emerging Asia, as well as Germany. Um, so those are all the negative pieces of the puzzle. The more positive ones, uh, much more related to the consumer. That definitely remains the life vest here. Right. And, you know, you mentioned, obviously, the trade war being the biggest uh, weight on manufacturing. I think the assumption for most of this year was that uh, this is something Donald Trump could could end instantly, could, could turn it around. Um, is that water under the bridge now, though? Is, has enough damage been done, do you think, that even uh, a tweet calling off the entire trade war would, would be enough to sort of turn these numbers around in time to avoid a, a contraction? I, struggled, I know that's a tough question. I, I right? struggled <laughs> to see what that tweet would look like. That would, <laughs> just because you know it would come in tweet form. A, in tweet form, and B, even not trying to be facetious, but just... You know, what would it say that would give everyone so much clarity right. that this issue is not coming back a month from now, a quarter from now, a couple of years from now? And especially because I think if you look at some recent surveys, there has been a building support here for a much tougher posture on China from the U.S. side, as well as building support within China to resist pressures like these from the outside. So outcome of the election or not, it's also hard to see how this issue goes away in, in a couple of years even. I have to say this week has felt very long. It was at the beginning of this week that President Trump did come out in his administration and delay those 10 percent tariffs, well, at least a portion of them from September 1st to December 15th. Even with this delay, though, does it actually change the outlook? Does it change anything for people who are actually putting money to work right now? Uh, I think if it does change anything, it might do so in in a slightly negative way. First off, it's you know the mere fact that there is a delay on you know the the items deemed to be highly Christmas consumer sensitive does tell you you know that's tantamount. That's the best admission you'll get as to who is paying for the tariffs, and it's you know the uh, the American the American worker, the American consumer uh, by uh, by and large. And then secondly, I think the idea that we had Wilbur Ross almost you know pretty much confirmed the idea that there was no quid pro quo here and that the U.S. really came to the table to make this happen, Mm -hmm. Uh, this could probably embolden China to take a tougher line if they know that 
the U.S. has gotten to the point where it's the potential that any escalation really does start to blow back in a meaningful way on the U.S. economy and could potentially damage the president's reelection chances. So I, I think this gives you know both sides kind of fodder to to escalate, as odd as it seems, in a walk back. But is it potentially a step in the right direction, considering the fact that the administration is now considering or admitting, in a sense, that the consumer is the one who would bear the burden of this next set of tariffs? I I think it's encouraging in that front that uh, the escalation, the administration has clearly taken care to make sure that the brunt of the any escalation does not fall in a meaningful way on the U.S. consumer. The fact that they know it will happen if they go through with this, I guess, is encouraging for now. But like like Gabriella says, it's just so hard to tell what, why, wherefores, the, the considerations here. And there was actually a good note from RBC's Tom Porcelli uh, earlier this week saying that if China's trying to wait this out, they're really just betting on Biden winning, not even just Trump losing, right. because a lot of the Democratic candidates would take even as hard, if not harder, a line on trade with China. Gabrielle, I know you, you look a lot at emerging markets uh, pretty closely. Um, and every time that there's an escalation in trade tensions, it seems like they they get hit uh, even harder than the U.S. I mean, obviously, China, big weight in all the, the indexes. So so that's part of it. But I was uh, found it interesting in uh, one of the notes from you that you're, you're kind of bullish on emerging market consumers. And I'm curious uh, sort of what the rationale is for that. I mean, is it sort of going to be a bifurcated EM market where uh, maybe manufacturing gets hit, but the, the EM consumer stays strong? And, and walk us through your, your thinking with that. So for us, the EM story is, is a long-term story, and it's about this really long-term emergence of the middle-class consumer. So not the emergence of the countries, neither the economies as a whole, but of the consumers. So estimates uh, that we look at from Brookings Institute estimate that by 2030, we'll have added new 1.7 billion EM middle-class consumers. That's about three people per second. Wow. So that process is ongoing. Uh, trade war, no trade war. Uh, and that's really the long-term theme we're playing for here. Uh, and there's also a cyclical aspect, um, which is when you look at earnings expectations within EM Asia, you see a really strong bifurcation between the exporters, so just completely falling off a cliff, versus the ones that are geared towards this domestic demand story. And that's holding up much, much better. So both for safety, for defensiveness, as well as for that long-term growth story. And that's, uh, I would assume, sort of holds up even in the face of a strong dollar. I mean, uh, EM will turn more domestic-focused in that case. So a strong dollar is always a problem for EM relative performance compared to developed markets. So a risk aversion, growth worry, strong dollar kind of world doesn't mean EM is going to be able to outperform here. So it's about riding out that wave and really keeping your eye on the horizon, which is that EM consumer story. What is JP Morgan Asset Management's take on the goings on in Hong Kong, seeing that we are seeing the protests escalate? Some people are coming out and talking about the hit to GDP that could cause for Hong Kong, what that means for the rest of the world. How do you guys see this filtering in into assets? So staying completely away from the political um, issues, which um, we wouldn't comment on, but just purely the economic impact, Mm -hmm. I think we can can clearly see it. Um, And I think when you're thinking about investing in the China story at this point, even more than before, 
It's more a story of the domestic A shares in China, which are more domestic oriented anyway. And it is much more geared towards the consumer. And now you can add this added little ingredient uh, of being less exposed to any sort of slowdown that's probably occurring in Hong Kong. I feel like EM stocks have a correction every year, right? I mean, is is this any uh, more unusual than than past years, this drawdown we've seen? I mean, it's definitely better than last year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> last year was a very tough year for EM. Uh, it's definitely better than 2015. Um, but EM tends to be very, very volatile. Um, it, but as soon as, as things stabilize a bit, EM is going to be the one that really turns. And that goes to the long-term sort of thinking towards it, I imagine. Exactly. It's it's really a story of famine and feast in EM. Um, you have some really bad years, which this one's not one of the worst ones, followed by some really amazing years. And if you ride it out, then long-term, your returns are really good. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Luke, uh, you've spent a lot of time focusing on volatility, cross-asset volatility. I got to say, if I were a reporter focused on volatility, I think I would take 11 months of the year off and just come to work in August. Is Thank that, you. Is that, is, <laughs> can, you can, can, you, can you please be my boss? <laughs> <laughs> but how is this August? Obviously, it's been volatile, but uh, say for the last couple of years, August is traditionally pretty volatile. How How is this shaping up in terms of the, the history of August's volatility? I mean, it's I, I like to compare this more in terms of highlighting the difference between this vol shock and more recent ones we've had. I think that's, you know, it's pretty instructive to see the differences in this one. The demand, uh, the demand for puts relative to calls uh, has stayed in U.S. equities has stayed pretty high. So in past downturns, you know, it's skew, as it's known, has performed pretty well in the first leg of a downturn. And then it doesn't. And the thinking here has been that's twofold. People just you know dump their holdings. So, you know, you have nothing to hedge once you've sold and you know reduced gross. Or the second is that we've had this kind of dynamic in vol markets where, you know, and you saw this a lot during Q4, where big institutions were out in full size selling puts even into the, you know, selling S&P 500 puts even in, you know, the throes of a downturn. And so that actually has the effect perversely of, you know, dampening volatility if you have this huge supply on offer. The fact that that activity has gone away and your know, dealers right now are a little shorter gamma now than they have been in past downturns. It helps explain on the margin why we seem to be getting, you know, these larger intraday moves, because in the past, dealers would be pushing back against the intraday action. And now they're in a position where they're more exacerbating it on the margin. All right. And I'll let the listeners Google gamma on their own. <laughs> okay. All right. If I try to explain, I think we'd need a whole separate podcast to explain Next week. Gamma. Before we really get into the craziest thing, I feel like this will be a pretty good segue. Gabriela, we have to ask you. Gabriela was in Argentina roughly 10 days ago before we saw the complete fallout earlier this week. Do you feel like the reaction that we saw after that surprise primary election outcome was warranted? 
So I think it, it made sense uh, for two main reasons. The first is it was completely unexpected. So there was expected to be a very tight race between the incumbent and the opposition, very polarized, very consequential race. But the gap was really only about two and a half percentage points. Instead, we got a gap that was five times bigger. So a huge shock, huge surprise, not what was being priced in. So that makes sense in that in that regard. And the second way that it makes sense also is if the opposition does win, that really symbolizes policy discontinuity. Um, it brings into question not just economics, inflation, but also liquidity and solvency. So it, it makes sense to me. And that was actually going to be my crazy, weird <laughs> we'll, we'll let that still be your crazy thing. <laughs> My, I would advise going to Argentina in the winter, in our winter, though, not not the summer, isn't it? You know, I, I went there in their winter. It's very cozy. I kind of like it. I prefer it. You have some wine and All right, okay. meat and alcoholes <laughs> and skiing. Now, is there any risk? It doesn't seem like there's much risk of a contagion from Argentina, even in the rest of LATAM. You know, Argentina, let's just say, has been through this type of thing before. How are you looking at that? Is there... The potential for Argentina to become a more regional or even global story. So Argentina is very clearly in its own um, realm here in terms of where it's coming from and, right. and where it's going. Um, very unrepresentative of the broader LATAM and EM complex, generally speaking. But I think there were two read-throughs for the region for LATAM. Uh, the first is it's an important trading partner. Uh, especially for a big economy like Brazil. About 6% of its exports go to Argentina. So it would definitely do better if its main neighbor is doing better as well. And the second read-through is, is just the general disappointment, I think, that about four years ago there was a lot of enthusiasm about Argentina and reform and the direction of the country. And this is the first time in a little bit that investors have gotten disappointed um, so I think two read-throughs for the region, but by no means, of course, is it representative. And that was one of our crazy things from a few weeks ago. Someone pointed out the, I think it was the 10-year, the 100-year Argentina curve inverted. I mean, my, blow your mind. Mind-blowing. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and with that, I think it's time for the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. We really need a sound effect. To, we do. For the producers got to get us the sound effect. I don't know if we have the budget, but we have a hotline. I think we can get. Oh, the hotline, yeah. All right. right, maybe. I guess we shouldn't get too greedy. We do have a crazy thing that came in over the "What Goes Up" hotline. Let's give that a listen. This is Andy Cinco at Bloomberg News. What goes up when what was crazy this week? I'll tell you what. Recession story count. It's the highest since the end of 2011. Guys, that's the highest in eight years. All because the 210 curve went negative for a few hours. Cheers. <laughs> Our own Andy Cinco from the Markets Live blog. That is pretty crazy. I, I pointed that out, too. I mean, the curve didn't even close. And nope. I can't believe we're talking about the curve again. <laughs> but you were sick of it. But you I know, help I know. It. Andy, darn it. Anyway, that was pretty crazy. It didn't even close an inversion. If you do a, a end of day chart, it doesn't even look like the curve. Inverted, we, so. I mean, I have to apologize for that, too. But the fact of the matter was, uh, if, if I mean, markets have been freaking out every day, but if the Dow didn't close down 800 points, if the S&P didn't go in free fall, it seemed during the day, then maybe we wouldn't have been talking about the yield curve as much. It was just the reaction that forced you to in turn. Right, right. The recession could be coming in two to five years, <laughs> so we better sell everything now. But anyway, Sarah, uh, do you have anything crazy for us? So I have something a bit 
crazy that happened on Thursday. And it was just really the reaction that we saw that was pretty insane. So Harry Markopoulos, he was the person who came out and raised concerns about the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme ahead of its actual announcement. And when people actually took it down here, released a report on Thursday. And if you go and look at this report, it's pretty crazy. You go to this website and it opens to a huge logo that says General Electric, a bigger fraud than Enron. The website link is gefraud.com. And after this happened... It's really subtle about it. Yeah, very it? subtle, very subtle. Not. I mean, it, things are in bold in all caps. It's very intense when you look at it. Uh, but it sent GE at one point down near 18%. That was the worst day since 1987. Now, it did come back and regain some of those losses. But still, the fact that a report of this sort, he is working with an unknown short-selling hedge fund, um, but that it can drive GE down in a day like that. Sure, GE's been all over the place, but still pretty crazy. Yeah, I think the words uh, Madoff whistleblower are not the yes. thing you want to see no. in a headline about about your company. Absolutely so, not. Be interesting to see how that one uh, shakes out. Uh, Gabriella, I trust you have some several crazy things for us. But give us some give us sigmas. your craziest. Give us some sigmas and gamma and, and whatnot. <laughs> so I guess I previewed it. But for me, it was just such a crazy day for us on Monday uh, for our clients in Latin America and just for the price action we saw with Argentina, a currency that was down in one day 15 percent against the dollar. U.S. dollar bonds that were down almost 30 percent in one day and an equity market that was down about 50 percent in dollar terms. I mean, talk about a massive, massive move. Yeah, it's funny how much politics is infecting markets and how there's always these surprises that the po- the science of polling, I guess, is just not quite there yet. It doesn't seem like. No, <laughs> it doesn't seem like based by this. Yes, <laughs> it seems to be getting worse. In you know, the last it, couple elections, right, right. You think a in few the examples, of, perhaps? You, you think in the age of big data, it would be so precise now? But uh, actually, know. interesting. A few people that had looked at big data for the Argentina primary actually had called it in advance. Really? So the number of people that were tweeting or facebooking things like the dollar um, actually could have seen this coming. Wow. Oh. Interesting. I don't know, Luke. Can you top that? Uh, probably, probably not. But uh, <laughs> let's let's try anyway. So the the one sixty nine number earlier was in reference to the number of times that Adam appears in the prospectus <laughs> for WeWork's IPO. <laughs> and you, you did you control re- find that? You really, you really have to go through this thing because. Uh, Shira Ovide at uh, a Bloomberg Opinion, she, she she said it the best. She said, "I write about." things for a living and you know WeWork's prospectus nearly has me at a loss for words <laughs> the related party dealings section of that company oh, yeah. uh, essentially it shows at one point that the company made a very large loan to the founder that he then used to purchase stock and then repaid the loan posting the stock as collateral <laughs> so they this and in, 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 in a company where, you know, the actual org structure is so convoluted to know that the related party transactions personally are just as crazy and interwoven, 
I uh, this is definitely not uh, going to show up on any ESG list. <laughs> and like, and yeah, that's that's the G's fault. Very so, clean IPO. And they tried to sort of simplify that organization chart with an actual flow chart of it. Oh God, I, it, I, I I lost my head. It looks <laughs> like something that should be on a, a bulletin board with strings tied to you know attached to one another. Uh, that sort of thing. Anyway, that's pretty good. I don't know if I can beat it, but uh, mine's pretty good. You, we're all familiar with Overstock uh, and their CEO. Did anyone read about the CEO this week? Yes. Anyway, pretty crazy. Who didn't? Uh, the CEO of Overstock.com, a uh, guy named Patrick Byrne, basically released a statement this week uh, explaining the role he claims he played in the uh, investigation into Russian interference in the election and a whole bunch of other political intrigue that he says he was at the center of and is now speaking out against. So let me just read this statement that he released uh, without further commentary, uh, but you can sort of judge for yourself why the stock dropped 36% in two days. Starting in 2015, I, operating under the belief that I was helping legitimate law enforcement efforts, assisted in what are known as the Clinton investigation and the Russia investigation. In fact, I am the notorious missing chapter one of the Russia investigation. It was the third time in my life that I have helped the men in black. The first was when my friend Brian Williams was murdered, and the second was when I helped the MIB shake up Wall Street a decade ago. Unfortunately, this time turned out to be a less about law enforcement and more about political espionage conducted against Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and to a lesser degree, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. Whew. I still can't believe this is something that is actually <laughs> happening in this world. But then again, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Right. I think if you mentioned the, the, the men in black, the MIB, you got to you got to do that flashy thing to erase everyone's memory immediately <laughs> afterwards or else your stock's going to go down 36 percent. And that's exactly what it did. <laughs> but with that said, I mean, everyone had pretty great, crazy things this week. Had to be prepared with a week like this. Lukawa, Gabriela Santos, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Thanks so much. Our pleasure. What Goes Out will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. You can follow JP Morgan Asset Management at JP Morgan AM. And Luke Kawa is at LJ Kawa. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.